and uh, welcome. This is going to be the first of hopefully many uh, private market labs Twitter spaces. Um, you know, we're we're trying this out. This is one of our goals: is to sort of add a little bit of intelligence around some specific niches in the SMB investing community. Um, hopefully, we'll be able to talk about some you know very some specific, do some deep dives on some specific topics, and um, you know, I'm I'm thrilled to have everybody here. You know, today's guest we have David Jones. He is the president of Forward Solutions. Uh, David and I met in an event in Houston a couple months ago, and uh, we've talked a couple times since then about his experience in the SMB process. And by that, I mean you know, buying businesses, selling businesses, advising, consulting. Um, he really has a, a super well-rounded background, um, specifically in the world of manufacturing. So um, I'll let him introduce himself to get started, and then uh, we can get going. Um, David, thank you so much for joining us. Um can you tell maybe our listeners a little bit about your background in the space, some of the hats you're wearing, and uh, some of the different angles you're taking on this industry? Absolutely. Thank you for that uh, that warm introduction. I really appreciate that. So my name is David Jones, again, president here at Ford Solutions. Uh, what Ford Solutions is, is a growth solutions provider for sheet metal manufacturers. So what we do is uh, we work with companies that are looking to rapidly scale and grow their manufacturing operations. Uh, connect with the appropriate resources and tools and consulting that will allow them to achieve that growth safely and sustainably. So that's kind of what we do here in a nutshell. Uh, specifically, my background, I'm a, I guess what you would call it, a, a true and true manufacturing guy. This is all I've ever done professionally is work in the sheet metal manufacturing space as an engineer and operations manager kind of specializing in uh, the rapid growth of businesses as an employee, as an individual contributor. So that's my background. I know a fair amount about how to evaluate companies, how to make sure that company is solid. I've been involved in some acquisitions throughout my career, evaluating companies, bringing them into another company or doing that due diligence and finding out that, hey, this is probably not a good fit for us. So let's move on. So Definitely uh, looking forward to enlightening anyone interested in getting involved in the manufacturing space and hope to be a resource to you in your search. Fantastic. Thanks so much, David. Um, maybe let's start off. Could you tell us a little bit about uh, you know, just what are some of the core fundamentals of a strong manufacturing company? Like when you're evaluating an investment, what are you looking for? Okay. So I, I like to, uh, if you're not familiar with, manufacturing at all. So pretty much you know, every physical thing that a person uses or business uses was made somewhere, some manufacturing operation. So in that, there's two types of basic manufacturers. You have OEMs, which are product marketers who happen to make things, or they're, product, they're makers who are also product marketers. And then you have contract manufacturers. And these are kind of like your hired guns, if you will. So Depending on the type of business that you're looking to uh, evaluate, there's going to be kind of different core fundamentals to each business. So if you're looking at an OEM, you want to make sure that their product, right, just like any acquisition, is this product good? Does it have good market share in the market? Does it have a competitive advantage? Do they have some type of technology advantage in terms of patents or just some process that can't be easily uh, replicated? 
Are they in a specialized space? Are they making commodities sorts of things? So you want to make sure that the product itself is solid, their market, their market reputation is solid. They have some type of competitive moat around their product that protects them from being uh, knocked off, for lack of better words. And uh, if they have those things along with pretty solid management, um, you'll, you'll do all right. And if it's being poorly managed, as long as the product itself is really solid, you can turn that around. Uh, pretty easily and make that a very viable and successful business for you. On the contract manufacturer side, that's where it gets to be a little bit more uh, technically involved. So in that process, you want to evaluate what are their capabilities. So they're going to have certain pieces of equipment and processes, and you want to make sure that if you're going to get into the business as a contract manufacturer, you don't want to buy a lemon, for lack of better words. So right. maybe they're pumping a bunch of revenue this year, but next year there's a chance that half of their equipment is going to crap out. So that probably would be a red flag to say, hey, willing to buy the business, maybe you have some processes in how you engineer, design, but basically if they don't, it's a contract manufacturer, you don't have that moat in terms of product. It's all about your ability, your ability to produce a quality product in a timely and cost-effective uh, manner. And so what do you mean by like a solid product or like solid management? So let's, let's take those like one at a time. So could you okay. give me an example of like what is a solid product in this in this space look like? So versus, you know, hey, this is an average product or an average deal versus when you see a deal that's like, wow, this is this is fantastic. Um, I, I I'll have a higher valuation on a deal like this because the product is so good. Got it. So let me use an example that uh, I think most everyone in here could probably relate to. So if you think about Apple Computer, uh, when they started, they were making a computer that wasn't fundamentally different than anyone else's computer. So it was a good product, but that their lunch was eaten a lot in the early days. <laughs> so it wasn't a great product. Now, as they've evolved and they've innovated, particularly when Steve Jobs came back in the second time around, the iPod, the iPad, those products had a competitive advantage in terms of their design, in terms of their market appeal, and ultimately now their market share. So yeah, there's other phones, there's other MP3 players, there's all kinds of smartphones and laptops that are comparable in performance, but they've built a competitive moat in market perception, quality, and customer experience with how well all of their products uh, integrate and play with one another. So they also have kind of that tech IP that builds that moat. Maybe. Gotcha. So, go ahead. so it's sort of like brand IP, like sort of, so you're looking at maybe like sales metrics or, you know, uh, you know, traditional kind of market share metrics. Cause basically yeah. you're as a manufacturer, you're providing, you know, the, the pieces for this, for this tool, you know, this, this thing that's being manufactured. So basically your goal is to say, Hey, how good is this thing in the market? How, like, if they're an OEM, continuing to grow for sure. If they're an OEM, you want to know that the product is solid. It's it, that it can be profitable by itself, just the product and the way that they're manufacturing currently. So that'll be pretty, this basic, pretty financial analysis at that point to say, Hey, you're making this thing and you're consistently 30 40% margin, that's pretty good in this space if you're getting 30 40% margin after all of your, your expenses, net margin. That's, that's really good. Gotcha. And what about on the other side, like the contract manufacturing side? Are you talking about, like, in that case, you said it needs to be able to stand on its own. What did you mean by that? 
So here, here's another example. We'll go back to Apple. So Apple hasn't manufactured products as a company in a long time. So when you get your new Apple device, it always says designed in California. It doesn't say manufactured there. It's manufactured in Asia, uh, primarily by a company called Foxconn. So Foxconn does not, they're not an OEM. They don't make any of their own products, but they make pro products for most of the big electronics uh, consumer electronics companies. So Apple, Samsung to some extent, um, and then just other players in that space. So there as a contract manufacturer, they have all of that specialized equipment to make a certain type of product. They have the competencies, the experiences, the technical support, and they have a brand recognition as a contract manufacturer to know, hey, if I have a phone that I want to make, this is a good company to send it to. Um, and then also, because of the, the, the quality of their customer base, they have to continually invest back into their business. So you're not going to go into one of their facilities and see you know, some kind of machine that's 30 years old, it's dirty, and it's uh, taped together for – just it, paint the picture in your minds. It's going to be right. clean. It's going to be – you can tell that there's been – uh, some investment into the company there and there are times in, into the operations there are times where you can go into a, a press shop right and let's say they're making the stampings for the case for that phone that press might be 50 years old well that's mainly because they don't really make presses like that anymore so that's okay but in certain instances depending on the type type of equipment you don't want to see certain types of equipment being more than 10 years old that's a good indication they're not investing back into their business and they haven't been performing well enough to invest back into their business to stay competitive uh, over time. Gotcha. And so as you're sort of taking a look, like, you know, if you put your buyer hat on for a minute, yep. do you see any particular, you know, risks or strengths to looking at an OEM uh, manufacturer versus a contract manufacturer? And like, you know, how does your, your evaluation process differ between those two? Okay, because there's more um, kind of intellectual value, so the IP and an OEM, the multiple on an OEM is going to be much higher than on a contract manufacturer. When you're looking at a contract manufacturer, you might just be looking at what was their net earnings the last couple of years and saying, hey, I'm going to give you 2x, maybe up to 4x of earnings for previous couple of years average. Because uh, there's not really an upside. You're really competing for business every single year. And you're only going to be as successful as your customer base. So, and, and your ability to go find more customers. Whereas if you're a product marketer on the OEM side, those multiples can be much higher. That can be, you know, 5 to 10x earnings because you have this product that you can influence on the back end after you've procured the company. Uh, in terms of marketing, can you improve the product? Can you get more market share? Can you increase the price? You have a lot more flexibility in the profitability and growth of that business and control over that than you would in a, uh, a contract manufacturer. Gotcha. That's that's really interesting. So um, sort of shifting gears just slightly, um, one thing we hear about a lot you know, when we talk to buyers is that the due diligence process for a manufacturing company can be kind of challenging, in particular around asset valuations. And you mentioned this you know, just a little bit ago that you know, the quality of the equipment, the, the, the age of the equipment is really important. 
Um, you know, I think that that can scare people away a little bit in part because, you know, buyers may not feel comfortable, you know, doing some of this asset valuation on their own or buyers may feel like, you know, this process is, is a little bit difficult to to um, to dig into or they need some specialized um, expertise for that. Like, how do you help? What would you advise people in terms of getting around that challenge? And, um, you know, what, what should people be doing when it comes to the assets in particular, the due diligence process? Okay. So the, the, the actual physical assets, the equipment, the building, uh, all that sort of stuff, that's pretty straightforward, actually. Uh, and what I would recommend to the person, of course, if you're in that process, you can reach out to me. I'd be more than happy to help you or walk you through that. But also, you can just Google an equipment broker, a used industrial equipment broker, a new industrial equipment broker. These guys, that's what they do. They go in and they figure out how much they can get for the equipment on the open market, and that's what it's worth. You know, owners of these companies will also, they'll often assign some sentimental value to something. Uh, well, this machine is, we paid a million dollars for it. Well, that was 10 years ago. Now you can sell it for 30 grand. It just is what it is. Yep. So if you get an equipment broker, they'll come in and do those equipment uh, evaluations for you for free in many cases. They just want to have the opportunity to say, if you're going to sell this or be involved or if you buy the comp- company, think of me when you want to buy or sell some piece of equipment because that's their core business. Um, of course, the real estate, that's pretty straightforward. You can get you a, a, a realtor. So the physical assets, in my opinion and in my experience, uh, are a pretty small. They should be a pretty small part of the deal. You're really evaluating the business, their systems, and their there's their, their uh, stature in their particular market. Right. That's the important thing. Because if you know you're paying a million dollars for a piece of equi- equipment or, or ten million dollars, you should be making that money back in a year or two. That's pretty consistent and common in the industry. Uh, if they have a, a whole, if they have too much equipment for their business, um, there's some more questions you want to ask around that because that's also going to leave you encumbered with a lot of probably debt service. That's going to be difficult to overcome. That may be why they want to sell the business because they can't keep up with their debt service. So you want to make sure that this this equipment that they have on the books is being paid for uh, through their business that they're generating at that time. Or you're going to use that as a, as a discount um, or you're going to restructure that deal or that debt in some kind of way in that deal to bring that purchase price down. Gotcha. That's that's really interesting. So it sounds like, you know, as you're making this evaluation, you know, a couple of the experts that you're bringing in, right, you're bringing in maybe uh, an equipment broker to talk about the equipment and how it works and its condition and its value. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously, you have a real estate um, expert to talk about the real estate pieces, you know, yep. or, you know, maybe a, a lawyer to examine the leases if it's a lease facility. But mm-hmm. like in terms of, you know, are there any other particular experts that you think are, you know, might be unique to this kind of a deal or, or you would want to do a little bit more of a, a deep dive into? I, I think a, a, a good uh, CPA that's that's involved in this acquisition process to really help you understand if the kind of the operating overhead of that business is being properly absorbed. That's mm-hmm. that's the most important thing, in my opinion, to look at um, or if it's being absorbed too quickly. That's also a good indication of their level of investment back into the business. So I've seen cases where uh, cup where, where companies have acquired other manufacturers just for their market share, not so much for the equipment or the building. They're just like, I just want access to your customers, basically. 
So in that case, let's say that guy, that that business owner did a million dollars in revenue the previous year, let's say 20%, he'd probably be fine with a couple hundred grand in a job at the end of that because he's not investing anymore into his business and the company doesn't want any of their assets. They're just buying their book of business. And then there's other cases where you may be acquiring a manufacturer and you want the book of business, you want the equipment, so therefore your, your valuation and your multiple is going to be uh, higher. And it's all about kind of matching that uh, that expectation of where do you expect, how do you expect that business to perform in the next few years uh, with their current equipment um, to what that, that seller is looking to do. And if they're kind of out in La La Land, and, uh, they want some crazy multiple because they think that the whole economy is blowing up and that applies to them too. Well, you, ha you have to find a way to either bring them back to reality or you just have to let that one sit for a little bit if you want to make a prudent investment. Got it. And so in terms of, you mentioned some of the, the debt service uh, issues, you know, how do you typically see the financing of some of the equipment in these transactions. So when you're stepping into this kind of a deal, are you mm -hmm. looking at, you know, like a long-term debt? Are you looking at a lease? You know, are, you know, like what, what sort of is the, the structure uh, of kind of the ownership or, or the, the debt around these assets? They're usually going to finance them. A lot of companies will pay cash for their assets, which makes it a lot cleaner. Um, mm -hmm. That's just kind of the mentality of a lot of manufacturing business owners are pretty risk averse uh, in general um, when it comes to debt, that is. But if they are going to, they're typically not going to finance that equipment for more than five to seven years. And that's because uh, a lot of times for some equipment, you want to be updating that every five to seven years. So as it's coming off of the books, you also want it to be paid for. Therefore, it's a clean sale, it's a clean buy, it's a clean upgrade or trade in. It's just a lot easier on their accounting side. So if they're financing something for like 10 years, but it probably has a useful life of five, that's going to be a problem for you because you're going to have this anchor in your shop for a little bit. Yeah. Unless you want to take a red that flag. depreciation penalty. Exactly. Yep, absolutely. Um, so let's say, you know, you've, you've found a great business to, um, to, to purchase and you're, you know, you've found it, you've moved through the process, you've purchased this business and now you're stepping in, stepping in to op operate this business. Um, mm -hmm. you know, as a consultant, you know, what are some of the, you know, places where, um, operators need the most help, you know, where, when people step in and say, Oh my gosh, you know, David, you know, I need your help. You know, how do I figure out how to get this up and running? Uh -huh. You know, what are some of the things that a, an operator needs to be doing as they're, they're coming in and, you know, evaluating their, their new purchase? The first thing that that I recommend is getting super clear on the definition of success for that organization. So it needs to be the, the, the clearer and more concise you can make that message and that clarity, the better that business is going to operate in, in the manufacturing. So you might have some employees that you're inheriting. And business as usual before was something probably different than what you're going to want. So if you're going to say, hey, we've been growing at 5%. Now we need to grow at 20%. We're going to have, you have access to the capital that you need now. Uh, I, I'm mm -hmm. going to remove roadblocks for you. A lot of times I see operators go in and they're not clear. It's actually a super common issue. Um, and they're not really clear about what is success for the business. So they're running around trying to make improvements or change things, 
but they're not getting anywhere because they're not clear up front about where they're going. And I think if you're clear on that, kind of the methods and getting people in the right place will come a lot clearer to you. And it's easier for you to see where your gaps are in the administration of the business if you define success clearly and properly. So like, you know, any sort of thing, as you're sort of thinking back on some of the businesses you've worked with in the past, any particular, you know, near misses or, or horror stories, either kind of someone at the end of the due diligence process misses something or they step into a business and they say, oh my gosh, this is, this is so much worse than I had expected. Like, you know, any examples of sort of people who have dealt with that and, and how do they overcome it? Sure. Uh, one big one that jumps out to mind, and I, I probably should have included this in the due dil- diligence. You need to be aware when you're buying a company what kinds of chemicals and uh, gas gases are being emitted from their operation. Hmm. Uh, what you don't want to do is buy a Superfund site. That's really bad. And I've seen that happen a few times, even in like large Fortune 500 companies I've been associated with, where they'll acquire a business and they really acquired a Superfund site somewhere. So I got this smoking deal because someone knew that it was a Superfund. And now you're going to be responsible for paying potentially millions of dollars to get that site cleaned up or remediated Mm. so it's really though that's one of the biggest things i've seen uh blow up a deal in the end and a lot of times it's either gonna if you're doing the due diligence properly you'll discover that it'll get you an environmental consultant to come out that's almost a must just just to make sure that that business is not in trouble and sometimes maybe that person bought that business or that building from someone else when uh, let's use Roundup as an example. It wasn't a big yeah. deal 50 years ago to use Roundup on everything. Well, now we know that that's not good. Right. So if there's uh, a million gallons of Roundup in that soil, that's going to be a big issue for you now. Maybe the last owner was grandfathered in, but you won't be because of Interesting. new loss. So you want to make sure you're not walking into that kind of a mess. So definitely a couple follows from this. Um, first of all, you know, when you're talking super fun site, you mean, you know, uh, that's a designation from the from the federal government, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So what, what specifically does that mean? And how would someone find out if something is a super fun site? Okay. So I did use super fun, maybe a little loosely. It could be a super fun, but the primary thing you're looking for here is there environmental uh, risk associated with that property. So a lot of manufacturing processes, they use a lot of oils, lubricants, uh, chemicals to clean things. And those chemicals are going to bioaccumulate somewhere on that property. It's just the way that it generally works. So maybe it's not that big a deal depending on the chemical and where the, the laws and regulations are. But if that accumulation has happened over a long enough period of time, uh, I'll give you a specific example. Uh, my wife actually was an environmental manager in the manufacturing space for uh, about 15 years. And in her career, she had she was employed by a pharmaceutical company who uh, they were they were trying to uh, expand their facility. So they had to they needed to break ground and build add on to their building. And in that process, there's oh, there's this chemical in the soil. Well, they bought the building from 
some other guy who bought it from a strawberry farmer. So it was full of all these agricultural pesticides. Like this guy owned all the land around there. Let's say it's a thousand acres and they had a hundred. So that new company was then responsible potentially for uh, getting that area cleaned up. So you had to do all the engineering surveys. You had to do the environmental surveys. You had to prove that you were not the uh, producer of the contamination so that if the EPA were to come and designate that a Superfund site, which is where that situation was headed, there was enough bioaccumulation to where the government would say that the EPA would say that this poses a risk to anyone on the property. We got to do something about it. Um, got it. And if you're the producer, you're responsible. Or if it's uh, in your due diligence and you accepted the risk, you're responsible. If it's deemed to be like, this is reasonable, that, that you couldn't have expected this and you can prove it, well, then the, the government will pay for that cleanup, not you. But you just want to make sure you're real clear and if that's a risk that you're willing to take on into your business. So do you ever see that like grandfathered into a deal or priced in so you could get maybe some environmental assessment that then gets sort of factored into the pricing of the deal or, you know, how does a, an owner kind of mitigate some of this risk? You would have the seller. Most times I've seen people who execute that deal successfully, the seller will pay for all of that. It's a turn. It's a condition of the sale that this situation must be cleared up and and I must be unencumbered of that issue before I take ownership of the business. And if it's enough money, right, it's just going to kill the deal for you or for them. So it yeah. becomes pretty clear what you should do at that point or what's going to happen. And you, man you mentioned like a grandfathering process. So uh -huh. that doesn't pass on from owner to owner if it's the same uh, site. It really just depends on where the regulation is and what's going to be happening on that land it depends on what state you're in and how um how they how they deal with that so here in texas where where i know we are i'm in the dallas area i believe you're in austin uh, yep. tceq it's uh it leaves a lot of discretion to the local municipality so the county or the city so right. tceq is the state kind of version of the epa for texas the texas commission on environmental quality and so in, in the Austin area, in Central Texas, in Austin proper, you're in Travis County. But if you go to Williamson County, just the county north, you can pretty much do whatever you want to do in Williamson County. They don't really care right now. Because Travis County, it's a very different situation. It will be handled very differently. So Williamson County might say, yeah, your grandfather didn't. Don't worry about it. But you could go three miles south and be in Travis County and they'll say, nope. You bought it, you're aware of it, you're responsible. So it just depends on where you are. So definitely you want to get you know, some local experts. Uh, engineering firms are a good resource for that. and They can kind of get you up to speed on what that evaluation process would look like and then also what are the local regulations that would uh, affect you. You can also reach out to the TCEQ or whatever your state uh, environmental commission is. And they'll give you. They'll assign right. someone and to walk TCU you through that is process. The Texas Commission on Environmental Quality for for people who don't deal with the Texas government all the yeah, time. For sure. So you know they'll assign you a resource to say, hey, here's the person to help you through, and they'll get you connected with all the appropriate municipality contacts to make sure that you're in uh, good water. And gotcha. depending on if you're in a business friendly state, you know those those folks want you to be successful, and they don't want you to. They don't want to have to shut you down because that's not good for the business environment. 
So they're going to work with you to make sure that a suitable solution is had most of the time, unless there's just like egregious oversight or something. Right. But that's the whole point of this conversation. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, Any other sort of big issues that you've seen uh, beyond environmental ones? So let's say the environmental situation checks out anything else that you've seen, you know, be a big red flag or a deal killer when you've uh, been working with a, with a manufacturing company. The, the only other big one is, I think, is, is a lot simpler, and that's just an unrealistic expectation of the seller. Mm-hmm. They just believe that their business is worth a whole lot more than it is. And um, keeping in mind, too, that a lot of these guys are um, – this is all they know. So they don't have a lot of other business or industry experience. So they're you know emotionally attached to their business, and they think it's kind of maybe like a uh, a residential real estate deal, and someone's going to get in the bidding war. It's like, nope, this is the business deal, and if the numbers don't make sense, a reasonable person is not going to buy this. Yeah, and most no. people are not going to buy a five million dollar business for fun, so it's no. going to be a business person. <laughs> yep. So um, what's sort of your process like as you work with buyers and, and sellers in, in this space, you mm-hmm. know, at, at your company? You know, what sort of services are you providing? And uh, after this question, I'll open it up to Q&A. So I uh, get your questions ready. But um, what sort of uh, work, how, where are you, when are you kind of stepping into these deals, you know, particularly as a consultant? And, you know, what types of services are, are you providing in this space? Okay. So in my current business, my... My primary business is that of a management consultant, primarily. And in the course of conducting business, I may have a customer who says, hey, I want to get out. I want to sell my company. Uh, do you know of anyone who's interested in buying my company? If I do, we'll sit down and I'll get clear about what do they want out of this out of this transaction. So maybe they just want they just want to take their money and run. Maybe they want to be employed for some amount of time afterwards. Maybe they're looking, maybe they realize that they don't have the knowledge or resources to grow the business appropriately based on the demand that they're seeing. So once we're clear on what they want and where they're at, and where they would like to see their business go after a merger or sale, uh, then it becomes clear to me to say, maybe there's someone in my network I can broker a deal with in my existing network. So maybe a larger company. Or maybe two smaller companies can partner partner to form some larger, better company. Or I can reach out to Josh and say, hey, Josh, I have this deal. Let's put this <laughs> yeah. out in your marketplace and let's see um, if I can clearly define what the deal is and kind of where it's at. And then help walk a potential buyer through that process of, of evaluating uh, that company and see if it's a right fit for them. Got it. Yeah. And then, you know. David, you're um, you're actually offering your services on our marketplace right now. So if anyone has questions about manufacturing, that you can people can find David at privatemarketlabs.com. You know, in addition to uh, you know any of his uh, you know his current website at forward.solutions. Um, but yeah, let's uh, let's open up the uh, the questions to the audience. Um, does anyone have a question for for David? And I, I apologize for my uh, lack of experience with Twitter Spaces. I believe that uh, you you can raise your hand and, and ask to be made speaker, and then I can do that for you. So um, please let me know if you have any questions.
All right, go ahead. It's back investment. Yeah, yeah, David, a quick question for you. For a lot of these manufacturing accounts, especially if they're, you know, like sub $5 million in, in revenue, um, usually they've got a few major accounts that are drawing up a big chunk of their revenue. Is there anything specific to the way you're structuring some of these manufacturing deals where you're baking in something on customer retention? Or is that just a big risk you take uh, on the deal? Well, I think that goes to an initial part of the conversation to see how deeply embedded are they into that customer base? So you want to know if that revenue is, is if it's repeat business, you want to know the state of their relationships with that, that customer or the, that set of a couple few customers to see what that risk is. And if they've been having a lot of quality issues or the relationship is on the rocks, which I mean, you should be able to see email communications and things like that. So you can actually see what's going on and, potentially talk to that customer to see what are their perceptions of that business. Um, if the relationship's on the rocks and you're going to lose, let's say it's a, a $3 million business and that customer is a million dollars and you might lose that soon after the acquisition, uh, then yes, take that to an account in that deal to say, Hey, you're not really a $3 million company. You're really more like a two and a quarter or something because of the risk of that, that business. So let's, uh, Let's set that as the baseline as your revenue moving forward. So we will base our profitability and, and multiple off of that number instead of your your top line, which is pretty precarious at that point. Hopefully that answered your question clearly. If not, please jump back in and let me know. No, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I was just curious if there's anything specific. So I feel like manufacturing slates a little bit more towards having major accounts, whether it's a service contract or just repeat business on some of the tooling. Um, so figured I'd ask that. That's awesome. And Thank you. I will also say that a lot of manufacturers, they build the base of their business model off of that. So it's usually not anything in between. So I'll give you an example. I have a customer with, uh, they do $100 million in revenue and they basically have four customers. And then I have a customer that does about $10 million in revenue. And they have uh, 150 customers. I have another one that does seven million. They have 400 customers. So some of them are super conscious about spreading that risk around up front, and others are more. I'd rather grow big with a few people, sort of deal. And it really changes the kinds of equipment and the kinds of investment that they would make into the operation based on how they structure their uh, their client acquisition strategy. Fantastic. Thank you so much for that question. Um, any additional questions for David? So in the meantime, I actually have one more follow up question. Um, I had, you know, sort of written down over the course of today. So, um, the IBBA, the International Business Brokers Association just reached, just recently, um, released a report that um, so this is basically broker deals. They said that in Q4, 21% of all deals in the five to $50 million range that closed in Q4 were manufacturing deals. And that was sort of the largest sub-segment in, uh, in that price range. Um, mm -hmm. Are you seeing um, you know, an uptick in people wanting to sell? Or you know, what are you seeing in terms of the, the market itself for these kinds of businesses you know, over you know, Q4 and, and looking forward over the medium term. Got it. Uh, I think that 
that observation just kind of intuitively is right on point from my experience. Uh, most of the manufacturers in, in the space are going to be about that size. So that's why it's in that space. And there's a reason for that. Um, manufacturing to me is a great industry. I've, I've grown up in it professionally and I enjoy it. It's also a very stressful business because you're dealing with uh, extended net terms a lot of times, 30, 60, 90 days. And if you're not managing that business appropriately, uh, you can get upside down pretty quick. Uh, that's reason one. Reason two is a lot of uh, guys that own uh, these types of businesses are in their 50s, 60s, and early 70s. So they're looking to get out of the business and, and, and retire. And uh, most companies that are kind of that small to medium size of a manufacturer, they don't really want to get much larger than 20 to 50 million most of the time, just to be frank. They, they will they will stunt the growth there because they don't want to get any bigger. They want to maintain the family feel of the organization. And if they don't have kids uh, that want to take over the business, they're going to sell it to someone who is interested. And I, I do see that a lot where a lot of my customers are – 60, 70 years old, you know, they've made a, a comfortable life for themselves. They've been successful in business. They've sent their kids off to be doctors, lawyers, and other professionals. They're not coming to work in a dirty factory. So you are, you are seeing a lot more selling in that regard. Uh, they're just burned out or they're stressed out, or they just don't really have a succession plan in place. Gotcha. That makes sense. Um, Last call for questions, and uh, if not, I think we'll we'll move to close. So, any other questions for David? You can just raise your hand through the uh, through the app. I think. Okay. Well, um, cool. thanks everybody for attending, and thank you so much to David. Um, this has been a great conversation. Really appreciate you lending your expertise here to this community. Um, you know, everybody, if you're, you know, we're going to be doing more of these and, you know, so please, you know, find me on Twitter at Levine JM and, um, you know, our, our company is at private market. Um, and you know, if we can, if you have any suggestions for future topics or, you know, additional questions, I can, uh, you know, I can help answer, please let me know. And, uh, David's Twitter account is at four W S I N C that's for four word solutions. And uh, you can find him there as well, as well as uh, in our marketplace on privatemarketlabs.com. So uh, thank you so much, everybody.